0: This is the Bill Kelly Show Podcast.
1: We're at that time of the year now uh, where politicians, prime ministers, premiers, etc. do some reflection, I guess, on what's gone on over the last 12 months and a little uh, navel-gazing, I guess, as to what's going to be going forward. And uh, to that end, uh, Alan Carter, the anchor of uh, Global News at 530, co-anchor of uh, Global News at 530, and of course, Queen's Park Bureau Chief with Global News, uh, sat down with Premier Kathleen Wynne. Now, we haven't seen the whole interview yet. Uh, that'll be coming up a little bit later on on uh, Focus Ontario on Saturday, but uh, we saw snippets of it, and to that end, I wanted to bring Alan on to talk about this. Alan Carter, of course, from Global News, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Alan. How you doing today?
0: Uh, great, Bill. How you doing?
1: Excellent. I uh, really appreciate the time today. Uh, let's just say we saw the snippet on 530 News last night. Uh, Focus Ontario, you'll run the whole interview, right? Yeah, that's right. And
0: that's uh, this weekend, five thirty p.m. and Sunday morning at eleven thirty a.m. Which I don't think you have anything else that's going on Sunday morning. You
1: no, know, you don't have any plans no, I'll be, morning I'll be I'll be I'll be planted in front of the TV to watch. Sure. The- <laughs> well, that's
0: that's what you do, Chris. This morning, you get up, you <laughs> pour yourself a large nog, and you flip on some political television.
1: Kids will open the gifts after Focus Ontario. <laughs> you know that's the tradition here. You know that. Why would we vary from it, right? <laughs> so, uh, anyway, interesting uh, discussion that you had with the premier, and and, and obviously, Alan, the, a, a good deal of the focus that had to go with hydro and the impact it's had on this government and had uh, on all of us really this year.
0: Yeah, I really stuck to, to, to a couple of quick issues. You know, <clears throat> with these things, it's, you sort of back to back to back to back. You only have a certain amount of time, and I really wanted to drill down on on three key issues, and that was number one, hydro; number two, cap and trade; and number three, tolls. Because I think all three uh, are going to be ballot issues in 2018, and you know that the the provincial government, their strategists, are looking at how it plays out and how it spins itself out over the next 18 months or so. Um, So to start with Hydro, you know, again, she was contrite, as we'd sort of heard a a few weeks back when she was at the Liberal uh, Annual General Meeting in Ottawa, where she initially had said, well, listen, uh, high hydro prices are, are my mistake, uh, it, you know. And she sort of repeated that very quickly, like, "Oh yeah, I, I, I didn't react quickly enough. I didn't understand how bad it was. But we had to do everything that we did." So there's a there's a sort of an element of contrition, but yet uh, it's you know nothing in terms of well we made a mistake. It's just well we didn't realize it was as bad as it was uh, fast enough.
1: Is that? Is that that, that that mea culpa that, that she's come out with? And, and you're right, she was rather terse with it yesterday, because uh, that was one of the segments that uh, that they ran, of course, on 530. It, it just seems to me as if she almost was insinuating, yeah, yeah, I said I'm sorry, now move on.
0: Well, exactly. And then, and then I said to her, I said, listen, you know, you, uh, you know you've you done a fair bit of apologizing since you've taken over. I mean, you, you said I'm sorry about the gas plants, and now you're saying I'm sorry about the hydro. Do you have a sense that that kind of contrition works with voters? And, you know, you might say, well, yes, it does, because she said, sorry about the gas plants and she won a majority. But she said, well, those are two totally, totally different issues. Um, I I think I'll leave it to, to to listeners to decide whether or not that's the case.
1: Well, um, yeah, because I mean, you know, there's there's only the one taxpayer. We we've seen the impact that this has had on this. Uh, one of the the other elements you talked about, of course, was the, was the billing, and, and which I thought was a rather interesting conversation.
0: Yeah, I really went at her about it, um,
1: you know, and and I've had some blowback that maybe I was, uh, you know,
0: I don't know if I was rude or not, but I wanted an answer, which is this whole thing about uh, cap and trade, and and you may have heard this that. So cap and trade, when it comes in January 1, is going to add 4 to $5 a month in your home heating costs. But that won't show up as a separate line on your bill. It'll be rolled into the delivery charge. And the government says, well, that's up to the Ontario Energy Board. It makes the decisions. It's a quasi-judicial arms-length agency. We don't have anything to do about that. But there, there are tons of precedents of the government issuing um, directives. To the oeb and certainly could do so in this case so the premier says well i you know it's an important conversation to have what's on the bill and i think that we should have more transparency So she says that in one line and then when i say when i press her like well why don't you just issue a directive to the oeb tell them to do it I say well that's not our purview we can't do that and she never really does answer why they don't take that step and i mean it would be a simple thing to do to actually accomplish what she says she wants to do, which is transparency on
1: those bills. Well, exactly. In other words, she's, she's, she's trying to play the role of, yeah, if that's what everybody wants, then, then certainly we'll do that because I'm all about transparency. But she does have that opportunity. And, uh, and if you remember the, the context of this, because you guys talked about this on, on Global, of course, as we did here on, on the radio, that there, there were surveys that were done. Uh, one by the Auditor General, others by other agencies as well. That basically, and everybody, including the the, the electricity suppliers, that said yes, it should be transparent. Yet the uh, the Ontario Energy Board decided not to, and you got to wonder just who was in on that decision.
0: Well, I mean, who are they accountable to? They're not really accountable to anybody, you know. So you know, the government could say, "Wow, well, that's not." I mean, they're arm's length. We can't we can't do anything about it. And as you point out, the auditor looked at it and said, "Oh yeah, the OEB did consultations." Well, they didn't talk to any real people. They just talked to companies. And the companies they talked to, the vast majority of them wanted it separate. And then the auditor went and did its own polling and found 89% of us, you know, the hoi polloi, the, the lowly taxpayer, we want it separate. So who is it that doesn't want it separate? Well, the OEB and probably the government. And that's it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yet, yet she still maintains that she'd like to see it separate. So I, I, I really don't understand this. It, did, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and again, she, uh, she looked a little perturbed with you, Alan. I got to tell you, uh, yeah. at the end, she, I've already answered that question, and on yeah. and on it goes. Uh, yeah. But, but she didn't answer that question.
2: Well, that was
0: kind of my point. Is that you know, and, and I always find this so frustrating. I mean, if you do this job for a living, you kind of get used to this after a while. You just sort of get numb to it. You ask a hard question. You know, I'll ask you. You know, Bill, what's the color of the sky in your world? And you'll say, you know, skies are important. Uh, I believe in the <laughs> sky. Uh, I believe in the firmament. Uh, and then, and you, and you talk for ten minutes, and you don't actually answer. And I, you know, I think, I think people are annoyed with that. And so, what I, what we try and do at Global is, if you're not going to answer the question, if you're going to skate around a question that I, that I ask, I'm going to put that on TV. You know, in the past, a lot of times we just wouldn't put that on because, you know, you're looking for something of substance. But I think people have a right to know that when direct questions are asked, answers are often not given.
1: One of my favorite global moments was when you were interviewing uh, a certain uh, leader of a political party here in Ontario. And out of frustration, and I'll paraphrase this, uh, (laughs) I think you suggested to her, why don't you get a copy of the Kama Sutra and take a position on something? (laughs) Uh, You remember that?
0: Yes, I I think that was the, the Andrew Horner. Yes, it
1: was. Uh and and I don't even remember the context of what the issue was, but I mean, it's because you know, you've been doing this for a long time and we both have, I guess. Uh they they have their talking points and and when the premier sits down with Alan Carter or, or anybody else, she wants to stick to those talking points. In other words, this is the message I want to get across and I'm not going to let anybody's questions get me off track on that. And your job basically is to to get the answers to the questions you want to ask.
2: Yeah, and you can't,
0: I mean, you can't, you, you can't pry an answer
1: out of a politician. You
0: can't. You just, you, I mean, it's just, if they don't want to answer it, they don't want to answer it. But I, I increasingly see my role as someone who's going to then hold that up and say, look, I didn't answer. Um, you know, I didn't get an answer, but you should know I asked the question and, you know, this is what they gave in response.
1: The uh, One of the stories that I think is going to stick with an awful lot of us right through this year, as you look back on, on this year, was the the investigative reporting that Global did to do with hydro and the impact. I mean, there's obviously the debate, yes, it costs too much. But you put a face to it uh, on Global. The, the, the stuff that, that Sherry Engel did and, of course, Mike a uh, very uh, now-famous uh, investigative reporting about one particular family that was affected by this, too. Did, did you get a chance to talk to the Premier about the, that human impact?
0: yeah i did I mean I asked her you know did she have a sense of what was happening in rural Ontario because this is largely a rural uh situation, it's certainly much worse in the rural mm-hmm. province than it is in the urban centers and again, you know she oh yeah did she um she said that you know she had a sense that there were pockets where it was bad was her answer to that um you know and the, and the government itself is you know is really wishful that we would stop you know holding up these individual cases and to say look at this case of energy poverty here in our own backyard where somebody's having to you know haven't had a hasn't had a hot shower for 5 months and drags water in from outside in a pail lined with a garbage bag i mean do we want to live in a society where our neighbors live like that um, you know and the government i mean to some respect it you know you you have to agree with them and after a while i mean what can they say other than we're doing what we can and I think I think the, the, the telling thing here at the, the end of 2016 is that if you look at, at not only my interview, but uh, the Canadian press had an interview with her yesterday as well, everything is on the table. So I said, I asked her, would you spend more money from general revenue to lower hydro bills? I mean, they're already going to spend a billion dollars a year starting next year mm-hmm. to, for that 8% rebate. And she said, no, I'm not going to take that off the table. So there's nothing off the table, which kind of leaves you to believe that You wonder, look, do they have any plan at all? And really, when we say everything's on the table, they may further dip into that general revenue stream to help lower costs.
1: Well, they seem to be kind of governing by the seat of their pants this year, didn't they, Alan? I mean, just the way they did this, I know they offered uh, what they said was going to be a a reduction, and then they talked about the rebate program, and and then, of course, uh, those you know, the did the analysis on this, started saying, yeah, but cap and trade's coming in, so does that cancel it out? And that kind of flustered them once again, so I'm not sure if they know what the next step is.
0: I I really have a sense that they don't.
1: Um, You're right, the 8% rebate did have a kind of a
0: back of a napkin feel to it when they announced it this year. Um, You know, it's a regressive uh, rebate. You know, it's contrary to a lot of you know, ideas. I mean, I, I think maybe it was you and I that talked about it. You know, you, you're the Griswold and you like to light up your house so you can be seen from space. You still get the 8% discount. And meanwhile, here I am, you know, turning every light off and, you know, trying to tiptoe around the house in the cold to conserve power.
1: And yeah, and and the cap and trade and the impact that's going to have on this too. I, I, again, I got the sense from a lot of the the, the the like I said the small stuff, and I saw the story obviously that you guys put on the website about the the interview. Uh, a lot of the, the the explanation from the premier was, uh, well, I know it doesn't look good yet, but uh, wait till this comes in next year. Wait till this comes in next year. And they get, all, a number of different things like that. Uh, obviously, they're looking towards the election, and and in, which is going to be in in 2018. And and you talked about that a little bit too.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and I asked her, is this, I mean, is this the file, the hydro file? Is this the do or die file for you? If you don't get this right by 2018, you're out. You know, she said the correct political thing, which is this is not about the election. This is about people helping people afford their hydro bills. But, you know, there are political realities and you know that and everybody knows that. Um, So and, and you know that they're looking at that and they know that they have to somehow curtail what has been a bit of a spiraling anger over it over the last uh, year. And then they've got the next 12 months or so to really get a handle on that. And, you know, they're they're really trying to let people know, well, listen, we care. And we we're thinking about this. And although we don't know what we're going to do yet, we're going to do something. So that's the messaging they're trying to get across. Plus to say, look, we I mean, the key message from the government on the on the is We spent all the money. We've done all the hard lifting. Uh, and now we have this clean energy system. But the problem is, is that when you say, well, we've done all the heavy lifting, then, then you would think that the price increases were in the past. But the reality is, is they're not. They're still coming. There's still more.
1: Well, and therein lies the problem. I, I know they've canceled some future projects, but I mean, there's still a lot on the books right now that's going to cost a, an awful lot more. But, but you know, When you look back to the last provincial election, though, Alan, I mean, let's face it, I think both opposition leaders, certainly Tim Hudak and and, and Andrea Horvath, and and just about everybody in the media was looking at this, saying that gas plant thing is going to kill the liberals in that election, and it didn't. So does this one have legs? I mean, is this going to be uh, the the, the issue that's going to carry on? I mean, that's a year and a half out, and it's pretty hard to predict what's going to happen next month, let alone 18 months from now.
0: Well, you're absolutely right, I mean, and... and Patrick Brown, who leads in the polls, is a virtual unknown in the province still. Um, And, you know, he's got all kinds of opportunity to screw it up between now and then. And Lord knows we've seen the conservatives do that with aplomb for the last four elections. So, I mean, you're right. Yeah, I wouldn't count. I would never count out Kathleen Wynne, especially the liberals and Kathleen Wynne. The liberals have an incredible war room. They have the habit of winning. And I'll say that again because I think it's important. They are in the habit of winning, and that breeds success. And so they're very skilled in that. And Kathleen Wynn is an extraordinary campaigner. So I think Jerry's still out, although I think this time the difference is that if you look at her personal polling numbers, there is, for whatever reason, and I'll let you, you know, maybe a conversation for a different day, why it is that there's such a personal animosity attached to her that... I don't think I've seen in this province – I don't think I've seen in this province since the Harris days where you had a real segment of the population really energized and against the premier.
1: So where does that go when it gets to that that level? And and I, I don't disagree. I mean the the, the personal uh, polling on, on Kathleen Wynn is, is horrendous at this stage. Yet she was adamant when you talked about this that says I'm running again. I'm not going to step aside because there has been, as we know, a lot of speculation that's uh, that. Well, not just Kathleen Wynne, but just about anybody who's in that situation. Brian Mulroney did it. Uh, Jean Cratchan did it. You know, when they see the numbers going down, it's time for them to, to take that walk uh, into the sunset. She doesn't want to do that yet anyway.
0: She's only won one election. Yeah. So, And, and plus, <clears throat> think about the runway. They don't have, I mean, they managed to do it when McGinty, you know, suddenly left. They were able to get Wynne in quickly in time and be able to hold on to the, the minority government. They don't have that luxury this time around. And I don't think that they can do this whole regeneration where, you know, a new leader is now the face of change within the same party the way they did with McGinty to win. And Wynn is a fighter and a competitor, and she's, you know what, I don't think she, there's only one thing that would ever stop her from running, and that would be an electoral defeat.
1: Well, well, like I say, that's 18 months out. We're not worried about that at this stage. Uh, Fascinating interview. I'll be watching it on uh, December 24th at 5.30 for Focus Ontario to get the whole interview. (laughs) And and then we'll gather the kids around on Christmas morning. And I'm sure that's what's going to happen in the Carter household too, right? Oh, yeah. You you can imagine how excited (laughs) my kids are about that.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Serious incidents. A uh, truck rammed into a crowded Christmas market in Berlin yesterday, killing 12 people, injuring nearly 50 others, some of them very seriously. And uh, also earlier in the day, a Turkish policeman, off-duty policeman, failed to shot Russia's ambassador to Turkey while shouting, don't forget Aleppo, don't forget Syria. Joining us to talk about both incidents is uh, David said who of course formerly of Scotland Yard, terrorism expert uh, with the, the Yard, and also an author, of course, The uh, Theseus Paradox, a fabulous book. But uh, we want to get back into the terrorism and talk about that today. David, thank you for the time. It's a busy day. Appreciate you uh, joining us today.
2: Hello, How are
1: you I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, let's, let's take these. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the Berlin incident. This uh, obviously, when we heard about this yesterday, David, brought back memories, uh, some uh, very unpleasant memories of what happened earlier this year in Nice.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it, I mean, it, it, it does look uh, straight away. Uh, when you look at it as if it, as if it, it does have sort of the same ramifications as somebody, a commandeer in a large vehicle and then driving into a crowd of people. And it is something that, um, that the IS and, and other terror groups sort of in Palestine and Israel um, have been using for some time. So straight away, we are thinking it probably is a terror attack.
1: And and a, a copycat to a certain extent, uh, but it didn't end the same way because uh, I, I guess the truck crashed and I, the, the individual who they suspect and that's a rather new wrinkle to this this morning. Uh, they have somebody in custody as as we've heard, David, but they're not so sure it's the driver now.
2: Yeah, I think what happened is is that um, uh, there's, there's, there's quite a strange story behind this truck. Um, this truck is a Polish truck and uh, Poland is uh, sort of a joint uh, Germany. Um, and, um, and the, the truck has, has pick, picked up some cargo, uh, some steel beams in Italy, and then has delivered them to Berlin. Uh, and the people that own the truck are Polish. Um, and they lost contact with their driver at about 4 o'clock yesterday um, and couldn't understand where he was, um, and then noticed that this truck was being started and moved about. Um, and then, there, when after the incident happened with the Christmas market, where we it driven through the market and uh, it killed and injured all these people, they have found a dead man inside the cab of the truck, and and the suspicion is that this is the Polish driver, and whoever has driven the truck through the market has hijacked the truck, killed the driver, and just used the truck as as a weapon, uh, sort of on the market, as it were. Now that being the case, that is a very, very unusual attack for a vehicle of this type. I mean, bearing in mind that you know we 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 have seen people um, hijacking aircraft full of people and then using those as weapons and flying them into buildings. So mm-hmm. it, it's perhaps perhaps a similar sort of attack in that way. But it's very unusual to see a, a truck um, used in that way and uh, the, and the driver killed, uh, you know, left inside the truck. So uh, that's fairly very unique.
1: Uh, the streams as well why the uh, the concern now and and, and now the, the questioning as to whether or not they actually had the driver because the initial reports as you saw I was following you on Twitter this morning David uh mm. suggested that yes we have the driver in custody now they're not so sure uh, some people are suggesting that it might be because well there's actually been a change in command as to actually who's leading the investigation right now and uh, the, the, you know, I guess it's the federal authorities that are, are taking over in, in Berlin now are they
2: yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how what their setup is and the way that um, way that investigations work. But um, in most cases in, in Europe, what you have, you have a have a, a local police and then a federal police, um, and the local police might have uh, initially investigated it, and then the federal police have taken it on. But um, I, I've, some information is being banded about at the moment that um, this uh, Pakistani refugee was arrested uh, two kilometres from the actual scene of the incident where the truck was, and almost an hour later, uh, and he's been arrested purely on description, um, so somebody saying uh, the description of the man who got out of the cab that was driving, it looks like this, and then somebody else has seen this person uh, 56 minutes away and two kilometres away and said, that looks like the person, I'm going to arrest him and take him to the police station. So if that is the case, and I don't know, it is for certain, but that's what's been suggested, um, that there's fairly sort of weak evidence um, that this person was involved uh, and, and if you carry out some very very quick tests you know if there's been a gun used to shoot the individual that's been found in the truck um, and he doesn't have any gunshot. and this person doesn't have any gunshot residue on him and then you know somebody says well I don't think that is the man then there might be some extreme doubt and if somebody else takes on the case um, they may well say well look we don't think this is the person we'll con- carry on doing some further tests on the cab and look for his fingerprints, his p and and things like that, which will be left in the cab of the truck by the driver. Um, but they, I think they, there is concern that they don't have the right person and they need to get the word out that um, that there is a suspect on the loose and he might do this again. Is
1: this a Does this look to you anyway, David, to be a lone wolf situation or is this a planned and attack with others in, in support in some way, shape or form?
2: Well, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, I, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, until we know who the suspect is and, and what their motive is behind it, I mean, it could just it could purely be a, a criminal attack. It could be, you know, somebody who has decided um, to to try and make it look like uh, a refugee, make it look like an immigrant. Um, you know, it could you know, it could be suggested that somebody on the far right could have hijacked this truck. And, and then it may try to make it look like it's an, another terror attack to stir up sort of trouble. Until we know who that suspect is and what their motives are, it's very difficult to say. Um, it, it has all the hallmarks of a, hero, uh, of a terror attack. Um, it's very similar to me. Um, it is a tactic that's been used by terrorists before, but until we know who that suspect is, it's very difficult
1: to say. The uh, the subtext of what's going on here, of course, is the is the political uh, d- dilemma that's going in Germany right now with the uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel and, and and the pop basically the immigration concern problem, the refugee problem. Uh, she's uh, being lambasted in the media and in in many other circles really uh, because of their uh, their policy towards the refugees. Uh, so that that's that's underlying and that's I don't know if it's influencing the way people are looking at this, but it's certainly a factor, isn't it?
2: Oh, of course it is, and and there's a there's a lot of people even in, in here in England. You know, in mind we we haven't had anywhere near the number of of, of refugees and immigrants that have come. Uh, from Syria and from you know other parts of, of the world. You know, Africa and Pakistan and places like that. We, we don't get anywhere near the number that Germany has. Germany did. Um, willfully open uh, the gates and say we welcome refugees. You know that was Merkel's decision,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and that has created a lot of anger uh, in our own country, and, and, and certainly a lot of anger amongst the other Europeans um, who felt that um, it's attracted a, a sort of a, a much wider number of immigrants to, you know, to turn up on on Europe's shores. Um, and so so there, there is there's quite a, a big backlash about that right, at the moment. Um, and, you know, and there's, there's lots of people on the far right and, and you know, not even on the far right, but towards the centre right, really, that are saying, was this the right thing to do? And, you know, we, 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 we've got our own problems. We don't need to be taking on the world's extra problems as well. So there there is a bit of a backlash going on. And, and obviously these sorts of attacks and these sorts of things, it feeds right into... All of those concerns, it feeds into, you know, the, the right-wing media who use it to sort of say, you know, this is, this is what you get. This, Merkel's got blood on her hands, you know, this, and, and that's, that's the sort of thing we see. Um, and it's naive, it's very naive to think that because it, 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 you, you just totally close your eyes to the fact that there are normal crimes going on and, and there are a whole host of motives as to why people do these things. And, you know, it's not always terrorism, it's not always Muslims, it's not always, you know, people who aren't white. Um, You know, as I've been saying before, a lot of these things are carried out by residents of countries, long-term residents, people who've been there for a long time, Um, and people who have been born in countries or people in neighbouring countries. So, you know, to blame it on uh, refugees, blame it on immigrants isn't always the right thing to do.
1: You mentioned that there's a process in in place uh, to to try to identify whether or not this uh, individual that is... Uh, in custody right now is the actual driver you mentioned about gunpowder residue etc how long does it take to actually make that determination David I, I assume that process has already started
2: yeah, of course. I mean, it's fingerprints can be done fairly quickly. Sure. Um, you, you, know, you, you powder the, the, the print, it picture it up, and then you you pull them off with tape, and and they can be checked fairly quickly. Things like DNA, they take a little bit longer, and and they, and, and you know, normally about twenty four hours. But if you haven't, you know, when you, you swab a surface for DNA, you use like a, a swab for it, and it takes, checks up. You know, I don't residue off that's tested sometimes that isn't very strong and they have to to do some work on it to make it stronger and and get it back and get it back to what it should be and sort of recreate it as it were and those sorts of things can take longer um that's why i'm a bit surprised that the the german police are, are sort of saying well we don't think this is the guy um, because you know, surely they'll be taking his fingerprints, his DNA, uh, and, and 24, 48 hours is normally the sort of um, period you would expect before they could have any any degree of certainty, before they could say, no, that isn't, or well, yes, that is him. But then after that, you know, we've got things like uh, blood, uh, and, and, you know, extreme searches and in, using black lights and things like that, you know, you, you can put, you put things like cars in, in very dark rooms and use different sorts of lights to show up, different sorts of, um, uh, sort of body, blood and things like that, things that come out of the body. And, and, and again, they, that all takes time um, and, and, and certainly within 12 hours or 24 hours of it happening. We can't be, with any certainty, say that he's definitely not the
1: man, I don't think. It's not uncommon, though, is it there, David, for there to be a lot of misinformation early in the investigation like this, as uh, some people that claim to be witnesses uh, are going to come forward with what they think is relevant information, etc. I mean, police have a lot of sifting through to do here.
2: I, I, there'll be hundreds of hours of CCTV to look at. Um, you know, they will there'll be the police will be looking for all sorts of things. You know, they'll be they'll be wanting to get their videos from people who were were taking pictures or video in the Christmas market. You know, or, or some of those witnesses might not even realise they have that stuff in their possession, and the police won't know they've got it. Um, and, and it takes, takes weeks and months often to get that sort of thing to come through and then it takes weeks and months for the police then to look at it and to make an assessment of it so well, it's going to be a, a long time I think if this isn't the guy it's going to be a long time before they can actually identify who it is but hopefully there will be some CCTV hopefully there will be um, some forensic evidence inside the truck um, and then they can track down who it is or, or you know, say it's definitely this guy they've arrested who is two, two kilometres away
1: well, we'll wait for updates on that as uh, this starts to evolve over the next little while. Let's say, uh, if we could, shift our focus to uh, what happened in Ankara, Turkey yesterday, too. Uh, there was is, there is video of this uh, this incident, this murder of the, the Russian diplomat. Uh, this is almost surreal watching this, David. It was almost like I was watching a yeah. clip from a movie as opposed to real life. Uh, the, it just couldn't believe what was happening before our eyes
2: no sure and, and and funny enough i've I've been watching a few uh things on youtube today um there's lots of people suggesting it wasn't real life <laughs> um people saying you know it's a it's, a, it's a US force flag operation all that sort of thing um no it, it's kind of surreal to see that sort of thing and and it's it's very bizarre been in my issues uh with the russian ambassador um and you know the ambassadors in countries they're, they're, they're treated uh, quite seriously, and, and normally they have their own protection teams around them, they have their own people looking after them, and certainly, you know, ambassadors in this country they're not looked after by our own English police. You know, they have their own protection teams with them at all times. Um, so it's kind of strange that um, this police officer who shot him has, has managed to stand behind him uh, alone with none of his own protection officers uh, sort of around him. Uh, and, he, and he's been able to draw his weapon and shoot him dead uh, and then on top of that he's been able to stand there and, and uh, almost impuni- impu- with impunity and, and talk about all the things he wants to talk about before anyone intervenes in it and I find it incredible to be honest it's, um, uh, uh, all of those sort of things point in my opinion in the way of like this is something very strange and, and almost as if a number of Turkish police officers have been involved in it you know to, to restrict access to the ambassador's own security team, and, and to get this man to stand behind him and be able to shoot
1: him. As, as devastating as it was to actually watch this guy just walk up and shoot this guy in, in the back, and and, and then another yeah. shot. We're told as he was laying on the floor dying. Yeah. Uh, that's the first question I had. As this guy goes on to his rant, you know, and he's he's you know going, yeah. don't forget Aleppo. I'm the first thing I'm thinking, David. Is, Where's the rest of the security people? Uh, Why is uh, he I, allowed I, to I, do I, this?
2: And um, where where are where are the other police officers? Who, yeah. You know, if if if, if, the, if this is a, a a police protection team for some reason that's it, in that building, um, why aren't they intervening? You know, um, having you know having you know, one of my jobs is to currently is, to, is in protection and things like that. Um, and it's just bizarre. You know, you, you you have your eyes around you all the time, um, but to have this this guy standing behind him, armed with a gun, and and just get can and do what he likes. And then for some minutes, some minutes, nobody does anything about it. Uh, it's just incredible. Um, and uh, it, there, there's a lot more to this story than meets the eye. I think, you know, obviously the relationship between the Russians and the Turkish is, is very fraught at the moment anyway. They've only just restored diplomatic relations after Turkey shot down uh, a, a U.S. fighter plane, uh, sorry, a, a, a Russian fighter plane. Over Syria, Um, and we know obviously the the Russians have have been fighting uh, with Turkish-backed rebels in Syria, um, who have been fighting uh, Al Assad. Uh, You know, the whole the whole thing is is a a mess, um, and it's very 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 strange that um, that this has happened. I know I know the the Turkish president at the moment is blaming all this on on the person he says organised the coup in July. Um, there's the, a the man who lives in exile called Gulen that lives in in America, and uh, and he, the Turkish are blaming him for the coup, and they're blaming this um, assassination on him as well, saying that the police officer bizarrely, had the um, two days of the coup. He was he was off on holiday during the coup. Now whether any of that is true, I don't know. Um, but you know there, there could have all sorts of things going on in Turkey. Um, but it's a very strange strange event.
1: There's what are the ramifications in a situation like this? I mean, you know, Putin has already said that there, there will be an attempt to try to find out who did this, and uh, and they they, they want to get even. I mean, there there are, are going to be some ramifications here, uh, but and as you say, on a governmental level, there's a very strained relationship between Russia and Turkey right now, uh, yeah. and and you know, so there's going to be a political implication on this. But I mean, uh, how does how does Russia deal with this?
2: Well, I think it's very difficult for the Russians to do anything about it. I mean, either they, they they've got to they've got to stand back and wait for information to become available. Uh, but, but in doing so, they've got they're, they're relying on the Turkish telling the truth. Um, you know, they they will be doing their own investigation, but it's all that will be remotely. They won't be able to um, carry out a proper, full-on investigation like the Turkish will be able to do in their own country. Uh, bear in mind, it has happened in Ankara. Um, So everything that the Russians will do will be remotely. They may have some intelligence, you know, they may have some some interception uh, sort of data and things like that, and phone calls they might have intercepted, which which can suggest to them what has actually happened, and that will steer them into whatever their uh, opinion and and decision is going to be about what they're going to do about it. But um, but, uh, really, and truthfully, they've got to rely on what the Turkish tell them. And if the Turkish tell them, well, look, this is nothing to do with Erdogan, this is nothing to do with, um, with the, the, the rebels that you're fighting in, in, in Syria, this is everything, but it's everything to do with this, with this chap called Kulin who lives in, in America, then I, I think, um, I think the, 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 the opportunities for the Russians to uh, sort of get underneath that and, and see how, how much of that is true is very limited. Um, so it's, it's difficult. I, I don't know what the Russians are going to do about it. It's a scary situation, mm-hmm. it's a very scary situation, because obviously um Turkey's part of NATO, um, UK is part of NATO, and, and one of the agreements between all the NATO countries is if one one country, NATO country is attacked, then then the other NATO countries are duty bound to defend it. Um, and and so, so, if Russia, you know, decides that, that this was not a um, this wasn't a simple one-man band, this was something to do with Turkish government and to to carry out a retaliatory uh, attack on. Uh, on Turkey, and, and it obviously all the other NATO countries stand um, should be dragged into that as well. So it's, it's quite a sort of scary
1: uh, sort of position to be in at the moment.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: One in five young Canadians have been cyber-bullied or cyber stalked. This is a survey that was done by Statistics Canada. Uh, the numbers are troubling. I mean, one is one too many the fact that it's happening, especially with a younger demographic, is, uh, is something that we need to be talking about. And uh, to that point, we were uh, pleased to welcome Nika Naomi to the program, of course, from Digital Respect, to uh, to talk about this and the implications of it. Now, First of all, Nika, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: D- d- you saw these numbers. Did this surprise you?
3: Uh, Yeah, I kind of did, because I've been doing research about this for the last 11 years, and it seems like the rate has gone
1: up. 20% so doesn't that, sound, you might think, oh, that means 80% heaven, but I mean, you know, if you look at it in the context of, of, you know, that one is one too many, the fact that it's, it's one in five is, is really a troubling statistic, isn't
3: it? Yes. I, I, think, I think it's way more than I, I personally expected it to be in the last 10 years, I, and I think it's because of the, you know, the proliferation of all these uh, social media. You know, I mean, the more the more that the more that we're using them, the more that this is happening. And also, let's not forget that a few years ago, this was happening to only to teens. And, and this study was done for 15 to 29 year olds. Yeah. So we're talking about adults. So they, those teens who were teenagers a few years ago are now in university and in the workforce. And I just noticed that in that in this report, since it just came out. The largest number, it's 5.2% of 27- and 29-year-olds have been both cyberbullied and cyber stalked. That was a bit shocking to me. They have the highest number out of all the age groups.
1: You know, I can remember a conversation probably eight or ten years ago uh, when statistics started to come out about the cyberbullying that was going on. And, and do you remember the, the, the way the conversation used to go back in those days, Nick? It was, well, you know, as parents, we just have to make sure that the computer's in a room, that everybody can watch what's going on, and you can look over your child's shoulder and make sure that they're not doing anything untoward. Uh, and and that was probably good advice at the time. But a pro- the problem we've got here is as you say, it's the proliferation, not just of social media, but the fact that everybody's got a computer now. It's called a phone. Uh, And and so this is so much easier to do now.
3: Yeah. I I think that what's coming up now is that this was looked at before as a child issue, quote unquote. And uh, now I think it's more of a a global issue. So it's, it's affecting adults. So I think that there has to be some kind of um, measures put in place from multiple stakeholders, uh, including the government. The government kind of has to spearhead something. Uh, this is being done in other countries, such as you know Australia and Europe. Uh, in Australia, for instance, they have someone who's a cyber safety commissioner. So whenever someone's cyber bullied, they kind of report it to this one. They report it to a center that is run by the government. So as far as I understand. So uh, we we need some some similar response system in Canada, not only response system but also preventative measures, educational measures so that the you know kids who are in school now have some kind of digital literacy education and that when they grow up and they're 27, 29 they know what to do and they also are not engaging in these kind of behaviors and they know the legal risks. uh... they know the consequences and then you know i mean all these stakeholders have to be engaged involved informed about this issue you know we're talking like law enforcement we're talking social services um, family services psychiatrists psychologists um, the educational system the legal system all of that needs to come into play when we're talking about this it's not just an internet issue as it was
1: before. You, you mentioned about the numbers themselves, and, and I know that there's some people that are going to be listening to this and saying, come on, one in five, what's, that's, it's too bad, but come on, you know, it's only 20%. But there's the other element to this, and I'm always concerned about this when we see uh, surveys like this, Monica, how much of this goes unreported? So that's not going to make this report. It's not going to be in those statistics. Uh, it's happening, but people are either embarrassed or afraid to, to come forward and suggest that it's going on right now.
3: Yeah, no, I, think, I think it's a rather embarrassing thing to, be, uh, to, to say that you're, you're being bullied or harassed. Nobody wants to be pegged as a, as a victim, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I mean, I don't mind if you're 15 or you're 29. Nobody really wants to admit to that. That is part of it. But there, there's the other aspect of, you know, there has to be some kind of way of dealing with this. If you are a victim, who's going to help you? I think that's the question we have to ask. So our, maybe Statcan is going to come to your door and ask you a question, but who who is going to help you in terms of if this really happens to you? W- there's a bit of a gap in terms of um, where you can get help.
1: Well, sure, that's the question somebody's going to ask. I mean, we always encourage, you know, if if you're a victim, you've got to tell some, you've got to come forward, you've got to tell somebody about this. Who who do you tell? And and and, yes. if, and depending on who you tell, what do you expect them to do about it? uh confront the the individual that's doing it to you does that always work i mean that can go either way too so this i think we have to have a a, a much more thorough conversation here about exactly what protocol has to be followed here
3: yeah absolutely i mean i think that each you know i was was mentioning each of these stakeholders kind of knows what to do but when it gets to the point that something is a is a direct uh, threat or it, it could really be considered harassment or it's really something that's already in the criminal code <coughs> sorry um, this you know there's already there's already some kind of protocol but when it comes to I'm being I'm being stalked or I'm being bullied online most people don't know what to do so I think there has to be some kind of um, sensitization about that issue it's not only happening in schools it's happening in the workplace um, it, it's happening all over the place and it's happening to adults they've looked at 29 year olds but they haven't looked at 50 year olds, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of becoming a, a global issue of how do we engage online? What are our limits? And where do we go if something happens? What, you know, if you're a victim, where do you go? And then we have to establish some kind of go to place. I mean, I know Nova Scotia tried to have something. Um, they they tried to have a, like a cyber safety task force, I think and something like that or something in in that line is what i'm thinking that there could be a group of people who are taking care of this um nationally you know
1: are we in tune enough right now to to understand exactly what's going on when people are being victimized like this because there are still some people that react to to these accusations and say oh come on you know get a thicker skin don't you know don't be so sensitive yeah, you know, it's just a joke. They're just trying to have a little bit of fun with you, whatever. you. You've heard all of these excuses in the past about this, too, but they're still out there, those excuses, which, which makes me think that, you know, are, are we as sensitive as we should be to this issue?
3: I don't, I don't think we are. I mean, even this study itself kind of shocked me in the sense that it's pointing out that there's a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of mental weighing down. Uh, that that comes along with this even when you're in your adult life so if we're talking about a mental health issue this is affecting people's mental health this is a this is a bigger issue than just you know sticks and stones can break your bones but words can never hurt you that's I I think that if this is affecting um people's psyche in, in general I think that this needs to be dealt with uh sooner rather than later
1: well, exactly. Because, I mean, you take that example of somebody who's in their mid-20s, 27, 28 years old, whatever the case might be, and they're being victimized by this uh, cyber-stalked or cyber-bullied. Uh, it's, it's almost as if it's an admission of a, of a weakness to say, yeah, I'm, I'm being victimized by this. I mean, you're embarrassed by it. Uh, you're afraid of what's going to go on. And I guess the other thing is you're afraid of the reaction you're going to get from the people that you do talk to. If you do, in fact, find the courage to talk to somebody about it, how are they going to respond
3: yeah, I think the problem is it's often embarrassing mm-hmm. to tell other people what's happening to you. Whether whether they're, um, I mean, whether they're young or old, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's it's an embarrassing issue to talk about, and often when you're not already, you know, into when you're not already in that conversation that's taking place or in that interaction. You don't really understand even if a friend tells me they're being cyber stalked or a friend tells me her sister is being cyberbullied, she needs to explain it to me and even then I don't understand so I think part of it is that we don't understand that people are just not inhibited online so you know often they'll say something they'll say whatever they think without realizing the consequences because um, there's a feeling of privacy and uh, closeness and kind of a, it makes people feel comfortable and at the same time there's kind of there could be a toxic disinhibition where people are completely um, free to use vulgar language and they just let themselves go to be mean to other people because they don't see any consequence so when people are you have the internet we have all these apps there's you know there's dating apps there are you um, meet up uh, and there's all kinds of apps that connect people that don't know each other to each other. You're essentially dealing with all kinds of strangers all the time and people don't see any, they don't see any need to have a limit to their behaviors. And if you don't know the person, it's it's really easy just to be victimized and have no, you know, no recourse for that.
1: Uh, is there still a naivety about using social media and and, and this technology? Uh, that maybe some of us don't fully understand exactly, as you say, the scope of this. Uh, you know, I, I, I still so, know some people that think, you know, oh, I put something on Facebook. Unless I send it to you, Naomi, you're not going to know I put it on there. And of course you are. I mean, the world's going to know. It's uh, they, they, they seem to think that there's this expectation of privacy, which is really non-existent on social media.
3: Yeah, well, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. On the one hand... There is no privacy. But on the other hand, it's becoming one of our only tools of communication. Um, how often are we making phone calls now? I mean, can, can you imagine if all of our calls were tapped? So this is kind of what's happening. So it's like every everything we do is public in some way, whether we're using texting or um, Facebook or Snapchat or... Everything is kind of, our data is being collected. And at the same time, whatever we're putting out there is kind of being recorded by someone else. I mean, that's part of it. And part of it is knowing, I mean, part of it is also that because it, because this kind of bullying or stalking happens on these mediums, um, it's harder to prove that, somebody did something wrong and it's harder to track the people. It's harder to find them and, um, have any kind of, you know, any kind of consequence for them. And also when, when something's happening, what's happening very often now is, um, unfortunately women are being targeted, uh, because they'll send out intimate photos of themselves and then these photos will get, um, either disseminated or being used as leverage for um, getting money and stuff like, and this is happening to men as well, actually. So it's happening to both men and women. And that's an embarrassing thing. No one wants to talk about that. So where is the go-to place for that as well? I just, I question all these things. I think there's a need for education and also a need for um, empathy education early on in schools to, to learn, you know, if, if I put myself in that person's shoes, how would I feel? And I think that's not being emphasized enough. So the, there's all kinds of need for education, digital literacy, empathy, um, and also kind of a, a response system for when things like this do happen, how does law enforcement and the legal system um, help? And also if there's, there's a gap in terms of things getting dealt with, how can we make a system that properly deals with reports of internet stalking and internet bullying, right? So mm-hmm. if you're in Canada and you're being bullied on Facebook or Snapchat, who do you the first the first thing people say is call the police, but the police I think are pretty busy. They have other things on their plate. Well, that's that's so something that you know, we've yeah. just
1: had that discussion uh, in Hamilton just a little while ago uh, because they're talking about police budgets and and you know, trying to channel some resources now into this very problem and this very concern because uh, I don't think it's unique to Hamilton Police. I think a lot of police services right now would love to be able to do more. They just don't have the, the staffing to do it or the resources or the money to do that. And maybe that means there's going to have to be a discussion about about reevaluating exactly what's going on here because this, uh, this is becoming a bigger problem. Uh, I wish we, we had more time to talk about this right now, but uh, we're just right up against the clock as it turns out. Uh, Nika, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me again.
1: Okay, take care.
3: DigitalRespect.ca will be up uh, pretty soon. The Bill Kelly
0: Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.